I love biographies. They're one of my favorite things to read. When I was a, a high schooler, someone said to me that we ought to spend time in biographies as much as we can. Um, so biographies or autobiographies become a gift to us. The reason we spend time in them is because other people have lived before us and made many mistakes. And there might be a mistake or two that we could lessen on our part if we would learn from them ahead of us. And so for a number of years, that became sort of a regular diet. The reason I bring up biographies is because this section of Matthew is unique and special for the author of our book. Matthew is a disciple of Jesus. He wrote the first gospel of the New Testament. And what we're going to read now, beginning in the ninth verse of Matthew chapter 9, is his own calling to Jesus. Matthew records for us in these short verses what it was like to hear his name being called, to leave everything and to follow after Jesus. This is a story of conversion. It is an autobiographical note. Matthew, as usual, leaves it a little bit understated. He doesn't give us as much detail in some instances as Mark or Luke does. But we're going to listen to his account and consider what he says. This is about the calling of Matthew. And what we're going to look for as we consider these verses together when I read it is calling generally. How does the Bible consider calling? How should we think about it? We want to look at the called. Who gets this call? How do you know if you're on the call list? What are some evidences of that? And then finally, we want to consider the caller, the person who calls. And so those are pretty simple words, called or calling and then called and then caller. But as we read it, I want us to think about these things. I'm going to pray for us and then we'll talk. This is Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9. It says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table, at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." Let's pray just for a moment. Father, Scripture tells us that you dwell in unapproachable light. Perfect light. We dwell often in darkness. You are majestic, powerful beyond. Your creator, you exist separate from us. You are holiness in a person. We are fallen. We are ineffective and weak. God, I ask that this gap, this separation between you and all of your wonder and all of your majesty and our true need, that it would, it would widen, that we would esteem you more 
and esteem our own righteousness and our own works less. And I ask this so that the good news of the gospel might fill the space. We thank you this morning, God, that though you are far off and beyond and more than we could imagine that you've spoken, you've drawn near, you took on flesh, and you call us. And so I ask now that you would do what only you can do. I desire, of course, God, I want to be clear. May all who hear my voice hear the call of Jesus. And I ask, Holy Spirit, call effectually. Be at work because you know us more than we know ourselves. So I ask for doubts to be honestly dealt with and brought to you. For hurts and pains and difficulties and suffering to be met by your kindness and grace. I pray, God, for conviction. The places that we're distracted and are hiding and distant, that you'd wake us up. We pray for your help now. Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. Bring life. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. I want to talk about calling because this is how Matthew describes as he writes his own personal story what it was like to meet and hear his name from Jesus and follow. Calling has come on hard times. There was a time when all of us remembered and realized what a gift and a bit of magic the telephone was. And in thinking about illustrations or how to think about calling, I realized and was sort of stumped a few times because the reality is that almost no one calls anyone anymore. And for many people, the thought of being called sounds terrible, like an insult. There's nothing worse you could do than to call. Just text me. In fact, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but if you're under the age of 30, just a PSA, the phone part of iPhone actually stands for telephone, and you can make calls on that device. I don't know if you knew that, but it can, it can get another person's, human person's voice on the other line. It's probably the least used feature of many people's phones. Calling has fallen out of favor. The only way you can add insult to injury in calling sometimes is to leave a voicemail. Just text may be the thing we want to say. The reality is, is that people don't know how good they have it. When I was a kid, calling was much more of a difficult, involved process. Do you know that when I was a kid, if I wanted to hang out with my friends, I had to actually walk to a telephone? It wasn't just on my person. Imagine sitting and thinking to yourself, like, well, I'd love to hang out with Tommy, but the phone's way over there. You had to get up and walk over. You had to pick up a hefty phone and then had to not only remember their number, because it wasn't saved with a name and an emoji. You had to remember a number, but then you had to go through the process, the painful process of going click, 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 zoom, click, click, click. You remember this? Again, if you're under the age of 30, there were things called rotary phones. It was quite an involved process. To explain it, 
in order to get someone on the phone and talk to them, took some effort. And I guess what I'm going to try to say in a cheesy way is I want to explain the effort that is made for God to call a person. If we rarely call, or if I went as a kid, there was a process involved in calling, I want to explain now what's the process involved in calling when God desires to speak someone's name, how does that work? Now, this is just one example. Matthew describes, and the word is used a couple times here, it says in, the, in verse 9 at the beginning that there was a man called Matthew. And that's a way to describe someone name, someone's name. We don't do this in English very often, but many languages, including the Brits, might often say of someone that they are a person called so-and-so. What that means is that there is a voice that goes out that awakens something in someone. And the idea of calling someone a name means that you expect that they would respond. You could think of maybe your dog when you say his name, ears perk and head turns. For my dog, I could say his name, and then if I add treat especially. So the question becomes this. What is involved when God calls someone so that their ears perk and their head turns to respond? Jesus says in his own words that the purpose of his life, I think it could be argued that this is a calling book. It's a book describing the process that God went through to call us his own. Jesus says at the end, in response to this Pharisee inquiry, he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What's he saying? I came to call. So I want to consider what is calling according to scripture. And then I said before, we're going to think about, well, who gets called? How do you know? And then finally, we want to consider the caller. So that first question, how is calling used in the Bible? I might define it something like this. Calling is a word or a concept that Scripture uses to describe the awakening that happens in someone's life when God graciously communicates Himself to His creation. Calling is a word or a concept that Scripture puts over this awakening, this powerful awakening that happens when creatures like us graciously receive God's voice. He does this in many ways. And I might say to you at the outset that we have to consider the idea that there are, in many ways, different kind of calls in Scripture. And I want to talk about these because it's going to help us when we think about the personal call that Matthew experiences. The first thing to recognize is that all of creation, in a sense, is a call. When people who have gone before us and have been smarter than us wrote about the call or the calling in Scripture, they often talk about it in these categories. They talk about what is called a general call. The idea that the voice of God and His communication is going out over everything. That's one kind of call. And then we're also going to want to think about what has been described as a specific or an effectual call. And that might be the kind of thing that, ga- that grabs an individual's attention. Think Abraham. Think Moses. Think prodigal son. Think Matthew. So general call and then what we might call effectual or specific call. The first thing to say is this. The Bible testifies that all of creation is calling out for God. 
Romans 1 describes an idea that there is a sense in which the molecules of the world are a voice. The ocean, it says sometimes, is personified in the Bible. The ocean is clapping its hands. The winds, the storms, they are describing the power and majesty of God. So much so that this general call of all creation, Romans 1 says, it is so clear that everyone will be accountable to God on the day of judgment. That what has been, what could be known about him has been clearly displayed in creation. That's what Romans 1 says. Clearly displayed. All creation calls. The owls hoot. The lightnings crackle. I don't know what the dolphin does. The dolphin's knee. How do you you describe what a dolphin does? That sound, it is crying out and describing the Creator. So that's one part of the general call. More than that, the Bible describes, Romans goes on to describe, that conscience itself is installed in each human being and that conscience bears witness to the call of God. So there is something inside of each of us. The Bible puts it at one point that eternity has been placed in our hearts. There is a sense in which your understanding of what is right and wrong, knowing that you have committed wrong, or for many of us, the first awareness of this comes when we have been wronged. The reality is is that we have been installed with an understanding that God the Creator is calling out. And in this sense, Our conscience bears witness to the reality of the justice and holiness and goodness of God. Again, Scripture indicates that not only is creation enough to make us accountable, but that everyone, though we can suppress this understanding, and though we can have as many highfalutin ethical conversations as we want, that all of us inescapably understand that there is a Creator who has a standard over all things. This is a part of God's general call. There is no one who can escape it. More specifically, there is a general call that God has given through His special anointed or appointed people. There have been prophets who have been given in the land. Many who have spoken out, and all who would hear are accountable now for that sense of general call from God. These prophets at one point gave down the law of God. It is the conscience standard that is built into us made evident. And the Bible says what my driving instructor said, which is essentially this. If you have the law and know it, you're accountable. And if you don't know the specifics of the law, you're not let off the hook simply because you didn't know. My driving instructor reminded me If you don't know the speed limit because it's not posted, that doesn't mean you get to drive whatever speed you want. If the cop stops you, you can't say, oh, I didn't know it wasn't posted. 120 seemed fine to me. In the same way, there is a general accountability to God's call in his law, partly because of conscience, but also because it's been written. No one will be able to stand on judgment day and say, I never got the Ten Commandments. I didn't get that memo. This whole time, just as a hobby, I've been murdering on Thursdays. No one gets to say, I just didn't know. We have, there's a general cry of righteousness, holiness, standard, and the Creator that has been marked into all of creation itself. It bears witness in our conscience. The prophets, the law speak to it. 
And now, one of the greatest ministries and joys of the church, God's people, is that we participate in this general call of God. We are part of the process by which God calls out to His creation. You know how I mentioned calling Tommy earlier? I don't know what part we are. I don't know if we're the part where we walk into the phone. I don't know if we're the dialing part. I don't know if we're the yelling through the receiver part. But the point is this. We joyfully take upon ourselves the gift and the privilege to cry out to all creation the gospel of God given to us in the person of His Son. All who will listen. We go to every highway, every byway. Overturn every stone. We show no partiality. All who can hear ought listen because we are responsible to proclaim the gospel with as much frequency, fluency, and fervency as possible. Whenever and wherever we can, so long as the church exists, we are part of and have the obligation, the responsibility, the great joy to take part in this general call. We proclaim Jesus and His Lordship over all and anyone who will hear. His mercy and forgiveness is to everyone who might listen and humble themselves and repent. This is a general call of God over all creation. And, I'm using the word and intentionally, Sometimes if I say right now, but, then you might install, just by automatic, you might install a default contradiction between these things. You know how sometimes someone makes a big point and the whole time you're just waiting there saying like, but, but, but. You know, usually if someone says you're really great, hey, look, you're, you're so nice. You're really great. I, I liked some of the stuff you were doing and you're just sitting there just, now what's the contradiction? You see as though they're at odds. These are not at odds. There is a general call of God And we see throughout Scripture that God sees fit. He has His own prerogative for what very smart people through the ages have tried to describe as the effectual call of God. There are instances when in addition to the general call which holds all accountable, that God has prerogative to call specifically individuals and peoples by name. And what's amazing about this call is that Scripture describes that it is powerful to the point of, at points in Scripture, it says that it is irrevocable, it is a gift that is irresistible. There is confidence that God can, by His prerogative, and does, in fact, the only hope of the world is that He has a special prerogative to effectually call in a unique way, those who would be His. Now you might at this particular moment start having one or both of your eyeballs shake a little bit or go in the back of your head somewhat. And at some degree, I would want to say two things. One, stay with me because the Bible, which says all the promises we live our lives on, says these things clearly, so we want to embrace it. But two, if there's a bit of eyeball shaking, about this, that's probably good because the Bible itself says that some of these things, the mystery of God's effectual call, how is it that faith is stirred in someone? If I proclaim the gospel to a crowd of a thousand, what is it that changes someone's heart? The reality is is that these are hidden things 
They belong to God. That's what the Bible says. These are hidden things. They belong to God. We do not have responsibility in the same way over the effectual call that we do the general call. So we wake up in the morning and we joyfully proclaim to everyone and we go to bed at night desiring and praying for everyone to hear this call. But God's prerogative is over what Scripture calls the effectual call. I'm going to show you one example. This could be an hours-long discussion. But again, if your eyes boggle a little bit and go in the back of your mind, I'd say in one level, that's good because you're not responsible for this. But look at the confidence that Romans chapter 8 gives. In Romans chapter 8, verse 30, it says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is an amazingly hopeful verse. There is confidence behind this. But I would also ask you, if there is not an effectual specific call that God gives, then doesn't this verse prove too much? I just said that all of creation is calling out for God, that everyone is accountable in this way. But Romans 8.30 says that all who have been called will be justified and all will be justified will be glorified. So if what this means is that the great general call over all creation is the same, then I guess we must teach that every single person everywhere will end up in heaven glorified. But we know from Jesus' own teaching and his own ministry that's not the case. The reality is that the Bible speaks confidently of two things. One, it speaks confidently that what is known about the Creator holds all accountable at the day of judgment. And two, the Bible speaks confidently that God is not only willing but able to save. And that when He calls someone and awakens them and speaks their name, that their ears perk up and they turn and respond. And that is the miracle that we're witnessing here in the conversion of Matthew. And I want you to note, in the middle of chapters 8 and 9, this is the power of Jesus on display. We should not be less impressed that a tax collector leaves everything and follows Jesus than we are that a paralytic can walk. What happens in the heart of someone who is being called? It's absolutely astonishing. They hear and they turn. Jesus simply speaks, follow me. And Matthew follows. In that way, we might add to the definition of calling. It is not only that great communication of the creator to creation, Not only is gracious communication, but it is the kind of communication that wakens us to newness of life. There's a, if you're into words and stuff, which, how could you not be? I mean, who's the kind of person who says, I like a lot of stuff, words, not so much. I'll just say it this way then. The wording of the way this is written is delightful in this sense. What is the response of Matthew when his name is called? It says that he rose and followed him. This idea of rose is the same word that we placed upon Jesus when he resurrects from the dead. Jesus says in John 3 that what it looks like when someone is called is that the Spirit blows wherever it wishes. 
and those upon whom it blows, they are born again. Matthew describes here in Matthew chapter 9 that his calling is nothing less than new life. Matthew hears his voice called, his ears pick up, his heart awakens, and he rises literally to newness of life. Following Jesus, committing yourself to him, is not a slight moral improvement. It's not taking on a new set of ethics. It is being awakened to a new life. That's the kind of calling the Bible describes. Now, if that were not amazing enough, to have new life, to have sins forgiven, to be transferred from darkness to light, let's look at the next question, who is called? Because it could be, you know the gospel's amazing? Living with God forever, freedom from guilt and shame, no condemnation. Those would be good enough prizes that they would be the headliner for a competition of the best and brightest of humanity. You might say to yourself, well, goodness, who gets to earn that? Only the best of us, I hope. No, you see, the gospel gets even gooder when we consider who receives this call. And Matthew is a great example of himself of who gets called. Let's look at his life first and then consider the complaint of the Pharisees. It tells at the beginning, Matthew says this in a very passive sort of self-deferential way in verse 9. Jesus passed on from there. He's in Capernaum. It says he saw a man called Matthew who was sitting at the tax booth. Let me just put this into more stark terms like the Gospel of Mark and Luke do. Matthew is a tax collector. You know, it's like walking into a room and your lamp is smashed all over the floor and your toddler's been playing soccer in there. And you say, what happened to the lamp? And then the kid might say something like this. Well, I was in here playing and and then the lamp fell and it broke as though they were just an innocent bystander, right? To this thing. I just happened to be and then it happened. Matthew writes it in that kind of way. Jesus comes by and I mean, I, I was sitting in the tax booth. I just, he's a tax collector. He was actively the dregs of society. Tax collectors were those who had capitalized on Roman rule over the people of God and not only cooperated with the Roman Empire in taking of taxes for every bit of import, but more than that, enriched themselves on the backs of their kinsmen. Matthew was considered an outcast, an anathema. He was banned from proper worship in the temple. Matthew was not fit to be called. He's sitting at the tax booth, and Jesus points out to him and says, follow me. Now, it's extremely likely that Matthew knew of Jesus, had heard of him. You see, Matthew likely had his tax booth at the port on the Sea of Galilee at Capernaum. This is the place that, Matthew's, or that Jesus' ministry had begun, and so Matthew was there. He would have known every coming and going. You didn't get to bring in goods. You didn't get to trade goods. You didn't get to bring in your fish and sell it without the tax collector knowing. So Matthew, who had likely been sitting there and contemplating, but had not followed, Something changes from the day before, though he'd known of Jesus, to the moment that he hears this call and his heart awakens. And he leaves all behind and follows Christ. 
there's a demonstration here that the worst amongst us, the dregs of society, the tax collectors, Jesus seeks. Now, another thing about Matthew, the kind of person that was called. You know, it turns out, Jesus has a lot to say about money to be careful with it. But those who have money are not outside of the call of Christ. Matthew likely was fairly wealthy. This was a great job to have. And again, in a sort of passive way, it just says in verse 10, as Matthew records it, Jesus reclined at table in the house. This is likely Matthew's house. And when he hears the call of Jesus, he does what even the angels do. He throws a party. He throws a massive party. And here's the thing about people who are the dregs of society. They hang out with the dregs of society. So the party that he throws and that Jesus joyfully goes to with his disciples and they share a meal with are what the text calls tax collectors and sinners. It's in here twice. There is evidence that it seems as though the phrase tax collectors and sinners was a common way to describe, you know, those people. Which is really amazing to describe how bad tax collectors were. If you had to put one profession at the beginning of this phrase, you know the blank and sinners. I mean, isn't that amazing? What would you put? You know, the telemarketers and sinners. Or, you know, the lawyers and sinners. Or, you know, the politicians. Like, what would you put? I don't know what it would be. But imagine being someone who is placed in this phrase, the tax collectors and sinners. And they are all the ones that are hanging out with Jesus. And the Pharisees come. They're in full monitoring Jesus mode. They're seeking to find a way to put him to death. And they think they've found it. Why does your teacher eat with these kind of people? Jesus says to them, well, those who are, of, who are well have no need of a doctor. He puts himself in a doctor role. But instead, those who are sick. Now, I love that he just calls these people sick. This is probably a good test of whether or not you know that you're desirous of what Jesus has to offer or not. You see, those who are sick know they are sick, and they're not offended by it. You know, the sick. And it would have been the sinners who would have said, yes, totally. I'm needy. I'm destitute. I'm sick. I need to be well. But you know who gets offended by being called things like the sick? The self-assured, the confident, the well, those who believe they're whole. And so Jesus teaches them a very good lesson here. And he says that I have come to call. His whole life is a part of the calling of God, that effectual calling that leads to glorification. His whole life, I've come to call. But if you don't see your need for me, you will not pick up. You won't hear. He quotes then from Hosea chapter 6. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. There are all these little moments when Jesus is a wonderful teacher and he also is a good, he would be a good sort of like, um, he, in, in a spirit of debate. Remember, he tells the Pharisees who would have had much of the Old Testament memorized. So there's a bit of a cutting, a putting in their place whenever he says to them things like this, go and learn. Hey, great teachers, why don't you go back to first grade and remember what it is that God is doing when he grants communication and calling to his people? 
Here's the word for it. Mercy. Mercy. Do you know what mercy means? Mercy means not punishing what deserves punishing. Mercy is the idea that someone is allowed something that they have not earned. Mercy is for people who have not made it, the outcasts, those who were not able to visit the temple. And Matthew places himself squarely in the midst of that. And not only is Matthew included into the ministry of Jesus, but he becomes one of his most trusted disciples. Christianity is for the weak. Christianity is for the sick. Christianity is for those who have given up trying to prove it on their own. Christianity is for those who desire to confess sin, not hide it. And Jesus says, you don't understand me. You don't even have the basics of this thing down if you don't see that I love to show mercy. That's what my call is all about. And I would say, on the flip side, the Pharisees are missing it because they are not showing mercy like this. The Pharisees are those who took pride in two kinds of holiness. They took pride in their own life, the things that they did righteously, they were holy. And they also took pride in what I would call a kind of secondary holiness of separation. They not only were proud of the fact that they could prove to God that they'd done righteous things, but they had insisted upon and created an entire caste system of avoiding all the people who should be avoided. By labeling people as outcasts and untouchables, they proved their doctrine of holiness by separation. Which, of course, is counter to the entirety of the way that God calls, which is in the face of our fallenness and our need, God says, I will draw near. The incarnation of Jesus proves that God is one who goes near to those who otherwise would be separate. I think this means, and maybe I just apply it for a second for us, this means that we ought to be careful to insist that we follow Jesus if we are living as though there are outcasts or people who should be shunned and not loved well. I said earlier, sort of joking, like what profession would you put in there on the list of like these and sinners? But no, seriously, we might want to think in the Spirit of Christ, who do we put in a category of those who are not to be dined with? Those who are not to be shown mercy. Who is it? Is it the blank and the blank? If we follow Jesus who desires mercy and lives his entire life in showing mercy to those who are destitute, then we ought to be those who specialize in mercy. We should be a place where it is comfortable for people who feel full of doubt. Scripture says later, have mercy on those who doubt. How should we treat those people who have sincere questions about faith or difficulty or all these issues? Well, we should treat them mercifully. There must be some aspect of our following of Jesus that acts as though we understand his ministry. And that is, is that we should go toward those who are untouchable. 
Now, let me put a caveat on this. Some of you are extremely merciful. It might even be like, depending on which inventory you took, your spiritual gift. You're just really good at this. You know how to connect with people who are far off. And you say to yourself right now, yeah. And I just want to warn you that self-righteousness cuts both ways. And it's very possible for those of us who get it and are gracious to become extremely unmerciful toward the uppity folks. I think about the Apostle Paul with Israel. It is true that the Pharisees didn't get it. They rejected Christ. They're deserving of condemnation. But think about the heart of the Apostle Paul. He says that his heart breaks for his kinsmen according to the flesh. He says, I myself wish that I was accursed that they might enter in and see the beauty of Jesus. So I want to remind you, it is true that there might be slices of Christianity that have rejected those who need mercy, who have shown nothing but self-righteousness and hardness of heart and done all the things that you think are antithetical to the gospel. But my warning to you, my, my request of you is to show them mercy. If and where there are churches that are full of dead orthodoxy and posturing and have given up the essentials of the gospel, let's pray for an awakening in those places. Would they hear the call of Jesus who desires mercy? The reality is mercy should be given to those who are on the outside, those who are unthinkable. And I don't know who that is for you. It could be those overly religious churchy folks who do those things you can't believe. Let's beg that God would show them mercy. And let's press toward those who are uncomfortable to spend time with. So I said I was going to talk about calling generally. We had a big theology discussion. We talked about the amazing fact, good news made more good. You know who gets the calling of God? Those who are sick. Tax collectors. And sinners. I think that we must assess that the greatest and the most important thing about either of these categories is the caller. I want you to note that Jesus does not say to Matthew, Matthew, follow my agenda. Now, should we follow the agenda of Jesus? Yes. But that's not what he says. He does not say, Matthew, follow my ethics. Should we follow the ethics of Jesus? Absolutely yes. But first and foremost, the assessment that must be made at the heart of faith is what is the identity of the caller and does he have the right to call me? Christianity 101 starts with the person of Jesus Christ and a commitment to him. If and when and because you have become convinced that he is the Son of God, that he alone can forgive sins, then you commit to him when he calls you and you learn his goodness and his teaching and his commands as you live your life following him. I heard a pastor say one time, and I think this is a very, very good point. He said he spent hours and hours and hours talking with people who desired to come to Christianity, but they led with their questions. They said something like this, I will consider Jesus, but just tell me, what does the church teach about? And then insert whatever pet issue of the day. Now, some of these are very uh, real, now, present, but it would have changed, of course, at any point throughout human history. What does he think about 
images in worship? Or what does he think about this war or that war? What does he think about identity? Uh, let, me, let me start with this question. Uh, tell me about the sexual ethics of Christianity so that I can consider following. And what people do is they believe that they're choosing a platform and then they vote for the candidate who best fits their platform. That's not Christianity. Christianity is allegiance commitment to a person. It is to be convinced that Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth and to commit to him and then to joyfully learn and walk in his commands. And the reason I say this is this pastor pointed out, he said, I spent hours of people asking these questions. But at a certain point, though you want to be loving and careful and have mercy on those who doubt, of course, at a certain point, those questions just don't matter. He said, imagine being convinced that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the God of the universe incarnate, taken on human flesh. That Jesus is the only one who's ever lived a righteous life. He's your only hope to escape death. Imagine being convinced that all power in heaven and earth has been given to the Son of God. And when he calls you, you say something like this. Okay, but just before I get involved in this, uh, could you tell me what the specifics are of your teaching on marriage and family? It's asinine. It's absurd at a certain level. Why? Because the essence of calling is to be convinced of the power and authority of Jesus. And all of these other questions become secondary. They're important, but they're secondary. And compared to, they're secondary in a sense that they become ultimately inconsequential. The caller is the most important part of the calling. The disciples describe this. You see, Matthew becomes convinced at a certain point, everything else is worth leaving. I'm going to follow him. The disciples describe this moment in John chapter 6. It's one of my favorite passages in the Gospels. Jesus is doing Jesus things. He's stepping on toes. He's being scandalous. He's saying things that offend. He's not always popular. And there comes a moment of suffering and difficulty. And the 66th verse of John 6 says this. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I love Peter's answer. It shows that he understands Christianity 101. It's a commitment to an understanding, to a belief in the person of Jesus. Jesus says to him, "Uh, some people are getting embarrassed and leaving. Would you rather not be embarrassed? And Peter might say something like, well, no one likes embarrassment, but there's nowhere else to go. We're convinced that you're the Son of God. It's as though Peter might say something like this, "Uh, some people are going to suffer. You might suffer loss, ridicule, reputation, job. And Peter just says, Jesus, what are you talking about? I don't want any of those things, but you're the Son of God. Jesus might say to them, "Uh, you can't go where I'm going. You know, I'm going to end up in death. And again, it's as though Peter 
says, I've been called and I see and I know who you are. You have words of eternal life. What is death? To be a Christian is first and foremost not to like, agree with, or find esteemable every part of the platform. But to be a Christian is first and foremost to be convinced that there is one who has come and given his life on your behalf so that you would have newness of life. To be a Christian is to hear the effectual calling of God so that your ears pick up in unexplainable circumstances. You've suffered, you've sinned, you've doubted, but you wake up tomorrow and you say, I have nowhere else to turn. You're a person who understands that Jesus takes in the sick. You don't let your sickness keep you from the doctor. Your sickness drives you to the doctor. The caller, the perfect one, alone has words of eternal life. So we follow him. That is discipleship. And Matthew, in just a few short verses shows us what that looks like. Let's pray.